Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is Dr. Matt Shannon. He's Associate Professor at Emory and Henry College in the History Department. This is his 10th year, and he's getting ready to release his second book. The topic is Iran. Welcome to this conversation, Dr. Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. May I call you Matt? You can call me whatever you'd like. All right. We're going to call him Matt, even though Dr. Shannon is such an expert on Iran that I looked at all the materials to try to prepare for the interview, threw my hands up in the air and thought, this man knows too much. We're just going to have to take it from something very, very simple. You have devoted many, many years to the study of Iran. Where did that interest come from? It's a good question. Um I was a freshman in college when 9-11 happened, you know, beginning to think about the world, uh, college, uh, careers, all these types of things. You know, I was uh, very interested in learning more about the history of U.S. relations with the Middle East. Of course, you know, Iran is degrees removed from that initial event that sparked my uh, interest. But as you can probably remember, there were a lot of uh, different and very strong opinions about the countries of the Middle East after 9-11. People were talking about the axis of evil and you know, the war on terror. Of course, the US and Iran were sometimes at odds in the war in Iraq. So this was all in the headlines. And I was really just interested in hindsight, it seems, in a basic question, is the United States' relationship with a country like Iran inherently volatile, uh, violent, and uh, are the United States and Iran really engaged in some type of clash of civilizations, as folks talked about at the time. Um, so when I began uh, graduate school at UNC Wilmington, uh, I, was, uh, I finished there in 2009 before starting my doctoral program at Temple, which I finished in 2013. Uh, I wrote my master's thesis and then my PhD dissertation on U.S.-Iran relations. The subject really was international education. So what I found in the research is that despite the rupture that happened uh, between the United States and Iran in 1979 because of Iran's revolution and because of the escalation of tensions uh, after 9-11 and during the war on terror, that in fact, the United States and Iran had a very close relationship that uh, prior to 1979, the government of the United States and Iran and the people of the United States and Iran uh, were deeply interconnected. Uh, so this idea that uh, somehow countries 6,000 miles away from each other, you know, can't deal with each other, uh, can't understand each other, can't have a friendly relationship. Now, this is something I pushed back uh, against in my dissertation, which eventually became my first book, Losing Hearts and Minds. Uh, in 1979, when the Iranian Revolution happened, there were more Iranian students in the United States than there were students from any other country in the world. Uh, Taiwan, uh, the UK, Canada, uh, name your uh, ally. Um, so that was kind of really the basic question. I don't know if that's how I would have framed it, you know, when I was a, a younger student, but looking, you know, kind of back on it all. Uh, that's clearly kind of the animating driving force in my in my research. World events do tend to do that to us, don't they? So nine mm eleven -hmm. happens. You're impressionable. You have all these questions, being an intellectual, and you decide to go into the research area, and you find that gee, this country that's being portrayed as so horrible and evil now 
actually had had a good relationship with the United States. But how did you get to Iran from 9-11 in the Middle East? Sure. I mean, Iran is just a fascinating country uh, to start with. It has such a long history. You can read about what we now know as Iran. You can read about Cyrus the Great in the Old Testament, right? You can. Um, this is a country with a storied tradition, uh, one of the birthplaces of civilization. Uh, so it was just a fascinating uh, country. There's just a lot going on and a lot to understand uh, the, the poetry of the medieval Persian poets and, and all of these different things that uh, kind of contribute to, you know, kind of Iran's cultural palette. Just very practically speaking, when you go to school and you go to graduate school, you have advisors. <laughs> who have particular interests. And I, I was very fortunate at UNC Wilmington to uh, have a great advisor as an undergraduate and an MA student who was working on his first book at the time. Uh, and it was about Anglo-American security strategy in the Persian Gulf. So he was, you know, kind of deep into uh, this type of history. And, and I kind of caught the bug from him as I did a little 10-page ditty on the 1953 coup that the United States and the British staged to overthrow a democratically elected prime minister named Mohammad Mossadegh. Uh, so, um, you know, there's just an interest in Iranian history and culture. Uh, and then there are very practical things such as, you know, who your advisors are and what you're working with at the time. I was not a young, impressionable person on 9-11. I was a faculty member at Emory & Henry. And at Emory & Henry, we focus on justice and injustice and taught a lot of African-American students. I was concerned about some of their life experiences and racism. I remember when those planes hit those towers and the immediate aftermath, in my mind, it was like, we have a new target for racism, the Muslim world. That's absolutely the case. The rise of Islamophobia after 9-11 was real. Uh, Muslim Americans and people from Muslim majority countries or even people who, quote unquote, looked like they were from the Middle East were the target of harassment in the public sphere and also intense uh, government surveillance and scrutiny. We saw this all the way through, you know, during the previous uh, presidential term with the so-called Muslim ban. This hasn't really ended. Um, historically speaking, though, I've actually done research on this in the context of U.S.-Iran relations. One of the first major moments of popular American angst, anger, or even hatred toward Iran and Iranians happened in 1979 when America's ally, the Shah, was overthrown, the Islamic Republic was created, and on November 4th, 1979, revolutionaries uh, took the U.S. embassy uh, in Tehran and held its uh, employees hostage for 444 days. Uh, there was a tremendous, um, you know, we could call it Iranophobia sentiment in the United States between 1979 in 1981, and we would see this, you know, on the streets of American cities, uh, and we saw it in prejudicial, um, uh, like, screening policies that Iranian students were subjected to uh, by the INS and the Carter administration. You know, since 1979, uh, Iranians have been, uh, at various points in time, the subject of bigotry of all, all forms, whether it's racial, uh, uh, religious, or, or nationality-based, uh, and it and it, it has continued, of course, in the 21st century uh, after 9/11 uh, for even more groups.
I didn't even recall this when I was asking the question, but I did have a graduate who was a Muslim living in D.C., and she talked about the kind of scrutiny and suspicion that suddenly came her way. When these major events, revolutions or acts of terror or major shifts in the geopolitical sphere, you know, there's always, you know, kind of sociocultural fallout. You know, people who aren't even involved in these events often are, are caught in the, on the, in the crosshairs. When you were doing your study, your graduate study and your research, did you become well acquainted with Iranians? Did you go to Iran? It's a good question. So my training is in U.S. For, the history of U.S. foreign relations, what you would have called in previous maybe eras a diplomatic historian. But I, I wasn't trained as an area studies uh, specialist, right? Um, that being said, of course, yes, uh, friends, you know, have plenty of friends of Iranian descent in the U.S., colleagues, of course. I, I've been to Iran one time in 2015. Uh, it was a moment, it was, you know, just prior to the signing of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, aka the nuclear deal. Uh, there, uh, So it was a time when Americans were able to travel to Iran um, on tourist visas, uh, relatively freely and without, you know, having some of the concerns that maybe American citizens have about traveling to Iran when uh, there are more tense uh, political, um, in, in more tense political moments. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone who ever has the chance uh, when it's safe to do so to find a good um, uh, you know, tour company um, who will help you get your visa and help you have a great three weeks in Iran. And you can see everything from uh, ancient um, uh, Achaemenid Empire inscriptions in, in the mountains of Hamadan to uh, the, the ruins of Persepolis. I, I had the chance to, to go once, and I, I certainly would look forward to going back again. My guest today is Dr. Matt Shannon. He's Associate Professor of History at Emory and Henry College in his 10th year. He is an expert on Iran. But just before I reintroduced you, Matt, you said that you would encourage people to travel to Iran when it's safe. That's not exactly an encouraging comment. What would be the dangers of traveling to Iran? Well, I mean, so Iran takes hostages. Uh, they did it in 1979, as I referenced a few minutes ago. Uh, Iranian you know, proxies in Lebanon have been well known for taking Western hostages, especially during the 1980s. Um, there are Americans held hostage in Iran right now. There was a very high profile case a few years ago when Jason Rezaian, the Washington Post uh, journalist, was uh, held hostage in Iran. So, um, you know, when political tensions are high, sometimes this happens. Uh, the Iranians take hostages and they ultimately are used, um, unfortunately, as, you know, bargaining chips uh, in negotiations, such as getting Iranian financial assets released in exchange for the release of American hostages. Um, so that's a that's a concern. It's it's real. It shouldn't be overblown, but it's it, it shouldn't be understated either. Uh, of course, you know, since September of 2022, there has been a um, a, a tremendous uh, uh, push uh, against the uh, current government. Um, some folks would call it the uh, early stages of a revolution. Some folks would call it a, a mass protest. Uh, um, you can read about that in the news, but. You know, when Iran is uh, domestically in a state of turmoil, which it has been uh, since September and even a little farther back, but certainly since the death, the murder of Masa Amini, you, it wouldn't be a time 
for, you know, kind of your average American to venture into the Islamic Republic. So just watch the news carefully and uh, make wise decisions. It's interesting that you bring that up because actually this week, the week that we're doing this interview, Time Magazine has an article. It's called How Everyday Iranians Backed the Revolt. And they were talking about something. You said September. This was about October. And they were talking about how every night at nine o'clock, there'd be this chanting all over the country when it's dark, when people are in their homes and can't be seen. But this chant, women, life, freedom, That's right. and how that if they could figure out who was doing it, those people could just disappear. What sparked all that at that time just past this past fall? Mm-hmm. Well, there was a, a young woman, uh, Kurdish woman who was... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, detained for, you know, quote unquote, improper hijab. Um, and she uh, died in custody. Um, essentially, after that happened, you know, photos were released, people learned what happened, and, and people began taking to the street. Um, and yeah, the, the, the women life freedom has become the the mantra, the the, the rallying cry, the, the, the slogan of of the of the protests. Um, this year, which of course is very different than back when the Shah was in his final months and martial law was put in and people would go up onto the rooftops and shout, God is great. Some people referred to this as one of the biggest choruses in the world. You know, once the sun goes down and people go to the rooftops and, and make their voices known, uh, God is great in 1978-79, and now it's uh, women like freedom in a very different context for a, a different generation. But this is an oppressive regime. I mean, you're talking about a woman who died. She was arrested. And I think you said because she wasn't wearing the hijab, the head covering, she wasn't wearing it properly. Not to mention what would happen if somebody didn't have one on. What is life like there for women? What restrictions do they have? What freedoms do they have? Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, the, the government is, you know, some people, you know, it's certainly patriarchal. Some people describe it as a kind of close-knit fraternity of clerics and clerical supporters that make some of the key decisions. Um, after the 1979 revolution, there were um, uh, dress code restrictions uh, put on women. Um, so this idea that uh, as a woman, you would have to wear uh, the headscarf and, and certain coverings. Um, uh, there were some, uh, you know, while life was not uh, necessarily at all free under the previous regime, you know, there were some gains made for women. There was something called uh, the Family Protection Act, uh, which uh, made it so, you know, women could, you know, get divorce easier, have uh, child custody, these types of things that were difficult for women prior to the late 60s and early 70s in Iran and other uh, Islamic countries. And, and, one of the first things that the Islamic Republic did after 79 was, you know, repeal that Family Protection Act. It was deemed too Western, too bourgeois, all the things, uh, and also, you know, imposed dress codes uh, on um, women. There were certainly other freedoms that were rolled back too, but um, the ones that affected women were some of the most uh, harsh and some of the most visible. Driving, education, going out of the home. Well, so that's where it gets interesting. So, you know, women can drive in Iran. Uh, You'll see people flying around on motor scooters. There are more women in colleges and with college degrees in Iran than there are men now. Um, So 
there are uh, women in the parliament. There have been women in kind of vice presidential deputy type uh, uh, positions uh, in Iran. So, uh, but uh, it's also difficult to get into a lot of other you know professions once they do get that education or to uh, you know live live uh, the life they want to and, and make the choices about their own lives and, and bodies like people want all around the world. So. It's a bit of a paradox where, where there are it's very restrictive. There is also uh, there are also opportunities, and Iranian women, um, you know, um, uh, are better off than a lot of women in other Middle Eastern countries. Uh, but a lot needs to change for them to be uh, free and to enjoy the uh, the life to the fullest. Equal protection. Equal We've right. mentioned the Shah several times and 1979, the hostage crisis. I know about enough about that to know that the Shah was overthrown. He died. It turned everything crazy. Sort us out on that, would you, Dr. Shannon? Yeah. Um, so the Shah, um, you know, when 1978 started, uh, the Shah was kind of at the height of his power. He was unknown to the rest of the world, uh, dying of cancer. Um, but, you know, Jimmy Carter famously goes to Tehran. Uh, you can go and see the, uh, if you go to Iran, you can go into some of these old palaces and see the banquet rooms where <laughs> it's happened. They're preserved with information about all this. But uh, Jimmy Carter toasts the Shah's Iran as an island of stability in a very troubled region of the world, something like this. But island of stability is what everybody remembers. And uh, by January, late January, the early stages of the revolution had begun, right? So um, uh, the Shah leaves in January of 1979. Uh, there's a period of of time uh, in January and February where there are kind of competing governments and competing interests fighting for uh, control of the country. Uh, but uh, by February, the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, the first so-called supreme leader of the Islamic Republic, uh, he returns after 15 years in exile. On February 11th, the last remnants of the kind of royalist military uh, collapses. Uh, and in March 1979, there is a national referendum where Iranians uh, vote to establish an Islamic Republic. They uh, don't exactly at the time have all the uh, details about what that Islamic Republic will look like. Um, in November 1979, that's when that U.S. embassy is stormed and, and shut down the U.S. embassy. The U.S. has no embassy in Iran. The Iranians still have no embassy in the United States to this day after 40 some odd years. Uh, and by the end of 79 in December, um, there is a new constitution uh, that uh, is in uh, is, is the law of the land in Iran. And that constitution, among other things, um, you know, kind of enshrines the kind of power of the country uh, in the uh, position of this so-called uh, supreme uh, leader, what they call the mandate of the jurist, this idea that a supreme religious leader will preside over the country to protect Iran until the end of time, so to speak. And enforce uh, morality, a lesson sure. in what happens when you have religion and government intertwined. That's right. And and there is, you know, again, there are presidential elections every four years in Iran. There is a parliament where, you know, people get to elect representatives from their localities to go try to advocate for their interests. But 
there's very much an Islamic side of the Islamic Republic. This is the supreme leader, the clerical class, uh, the Revolutionary Guard, the Basij militia, the morality police. And then there is the Republican side of the Islamic Republic, you know, presidents, their cabinets, foreign ministers, uh, people in parliament, people in local and, uh, and national uh, government. And there is you know, often a tension between the Islamic and the Republican sides of the Islamic Republic. Since 2021, there's been a President Ibrahim Raisi who is lockstep with the Supreme Leader, and, and there's really more, um, there's more harmony between that presidential office and the Supreme Leader's office since 2021 than there has been perhaps in the, since 1979 when it was created. Right now, we have a new reason for the United States to have its guard up. Russia is supposedly getting help from Iran in the war against Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, um, there's been a lot in the news about Iranian-made drones um, being used uh, by the Russians in the war in Ukraine. Well, again, I don't mean to kind of oversimplify things. You know, it's one of these moments where there are illiberal states that see some type of opportunity to push back against, you know, kind of the U.S., uh, global presence. Uh, you're seeing this in the Persian Gulf uh, right now with Iran and even some other countries, it seems. Uh, you're seeing this uh, in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe. You're seeing it in East Asia, the South China Sea. Um, so this is, you know, a moment where the so-called liberal world order, if we can call it that, is certainly being uh, challenged by uh, illiberal states that, if not allies, have common interests in effectively expelling the United States from their respective regions. Do we still have an embargo against Iran? And you still have a friend there who visited here once, and I'll never forget his talking about the embargo and how there was no medicine in the hospitals because they couldn't buy it. So yeah. what's the latest on your friend and this situation there? Yeah, there has been a, you know, sanctions have been imposed on Iran effectively since the beginning in 1979. They've uh, really gotten... You know, they got more intense in the 90s. They escalated again uh, in the last 15 years. Uh, we see all the time about the impact of that sanctions regime on uh, Iran. Oftentimes we know, you know, sanctions affect often people, but not necessarily the people that you maybe hope the sanctions will impact. So, yeah, people, common people and, and, and common things, food, uh, medicine, you know, kind of the inflation of your currency, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, it hurts, you know, uh, people. As far as that that uh, interview we did in, in early 2017, it was interesting. In 2016-17, in that academic year, uh, Emory and Henry College hosted two scholars uh, from Iran. Uh, in the fall, uh, somebody came and uh, kind of gave a lecture, speak to some classes. We walked around and looked at the new arts building and went into the chapel. And, uh, and then in early 2017, we had a guest uh, lecturer, where uh, what we had was a scholar who is an expert in uh, ancient history. Uh, he reads cuneiform tablets, has a PhD from John Hopkins University, is a, a professor uh, in Iran. And it was a, a great opportunity for our Emory and Henry students, both through public lectures and this week-long intensive course on essentially ancient law, uh, to really learn about some things and some subjects that were well beyond the expertise of the Emory and Henry History Department. Uh, but again, it was a moment where these types of exchanges were possible, right? 2015, 16, uh, kind of 17, 
when people thought that maybe the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was just kind of a first step toward a broader rapprochement or normalization of relations. And, and we saw that reflected uh, in the exchange of people and scholars, Iranians in the United States and Americans in Iran. So how is that friend of yours doing? Oh, I think they're doing great. I mean, by uh, from what I can tell, you know, it's a humbling publication record to to see. You know, his output is is really incredible. He's, you know, very well known in his field. Uh, he's had, um, you know, kind of great success um, uh, in his profession. So I'm I'm just really happy that you know, despite everything that's going on in the world, there are opportunities for people, you know, historians to do their work and 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 at least do some of what makes them happy. Speaking of historians doing their work, Dr. Shannon, you have a new book coming out, and I've brought this up with about one minute to go in this interview, but your new book that will be published very soon is called Mission Manifest. Give us the headlines. What's this book about, and why is it so special to you? Sure. So Losing Hearts and Minds, uh, that was my first book. It was published in 2017. There was just a Persian language translation that was put out in Iran this year in 2023, a couple months ago. Uh, and that looked at Iranian students in the United States uh, prior to 1979. Uh, but, you know, there's another side of that coin, you know, just like there were tens of thousands of Iranian students in American universities, there were tens of thousands of Americans living in Iran, right? So I wanted to study the other piece of this history. Uh, while uh, Presbyterian missionaries were not the largest group of Americans in Iran, by the 70s, they were military people and defense contractors, right? But they were, you know, the longest uh, running, they, they had the longest running presence in Iran. America. The Mission Manifest is about American evangelicals, primarily these Presbyterian missionaries, but also other, you know, evangelically minded Americans with ideals attempting to do things kind of in the world uh, and, you know, what they were doing in Iran. So what they did in Iran was certainly they opened churches, but they ran development programs, they opened maternity clinics, they created literacy initiatives, uh, they ran schools for women, they ran some English language schools for the international population in the country, they created associations that would hold kind of cultural events and facilitate, you know, exchanges. Uh, and of course, they also came back to the United States. They, 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 it's a, they bring those experiences, Americans in Iran bring those experiences back to the United States in a kind of boomerang-like uh, fashion so that we can learn about them. If you wanted to learn about what life was like in Iran prior to 1979, of course, it would be best to talk to an Iranian who lived there. Uh, but you would find missionaries who would share their stories, children of missionaries and aid workers, Peace Corps volunteers. But for this book, the most important archive was the Presbyterian Historical Society. You can find personal letters, uh, institutional reports, um, letters from their Iranian friends who are trying to get their attention on some issue. One of my advisors wrote a book just recently. He wrote a memoir about his time in in Iran as a Peace Corps volunteer. And his book is called Living, Loving Iran, right? So he, he met his wife in Iran, got married in a church in Tehran. So old Jim Good's book, Living, Loving Iran. Dr. Shannon, you're not supposed to be promoting someone else's book, Living, Loving Iran. Mm -hmm. We're talking about your upcoming book, 
mission manifest, but it's a wonderful review of Iran and what's going on in Iran and world relations, U.S. relations. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me as always. Dr. Matt Shannon, Emory and Henry College Associate Professor of History and his love and passion for Iran that he's been sharing with us today. Thanks again, Dr. Shannon. Thanks to the listeners. You can go to wehcfm.com and you can find the link to podcasts and archives. You can find, oh, a couple of hundred uh, episodes of this conversation there and episodes of other shows that you find on WHC. This conversation can be heard over the air Wednesday at 6, Sunday at 2. Thank you again, listeners, and please stay tuned to WEHC and WISE.